When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that's about all kinds of sex in all kinds of art. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian with a one-tracked mind. If you do like the podcast, please subscribe, share and review. There are links in the show notes to merch as well, if you fancy it. This time, I'm leaving fiction and non-fiction works behind to turn towards visual art. Not the films, because they were formally censored by the state in the same way as the publications. This episode, I'm exploring how visual works were censured in unofficial, backdoor kind of ways. There was never a censorship office where paintings were scrutinised for filth, but visual art was vulnerable to social and political censure. Now, obviously, I can't read out the rude bits, but please check the show notes for links to the featured images. I've chosen two works this time. The first is by a favourite artist of mine, Harry Clark. A genius with stained glass, his Geneva window was created between 1926 and 1930. I do love Clark, his rich colour palette and then his unforgettable fame, melancholy figures, and I have a bit of a thing about stained glass anyway. And the second work is George Ruo's Christ and the Soldier, painted in 1930. It was presented to the Dublin Municipal Gallery of Modern Art in 1942. These very different works of art upset influential people who tried to keep them from the public. How these two pieces were received and what happened to them are stories of censure, secrecy and occasional controversy. To work out what happened, I'm joined by Roisin Kennedy from University College Dublin, who has written a really wonderful book called Art and the Nation State, The Reception of Modern Art in Ireland. Hi, Roisin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Aoife. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to try the impossible in podcast terms, which is to talk about the visual arts without showing anyone any visuals, although there will be links in the show notes. But we will be trying to talk about these visual images through our words today. I'm willing to give it a try. I think it's a good idea. A good departure has to be done. It's such an important story in the tale of censorship and censure. It's just as important as the books or the film. Uh, Well, I think so. So we're going to start with uh, a piece by Harry Clark. 
and it's called the Geneva Window. And can we just start off with a very brief description of what it looks like? Quite a conventional window, um, an eight-paned window, because it was destined to go in quite a conventional window space, although now it's in a museum in Miami. But um, um, if you wanted to get a sense of what the window likes, if you weren't able to fly out to Miami to see it, you could visit the um, Hulane Gallery and see the Eve of St. Agnes window, which was made just a few years before the Geneva window in the mid-1920s and was also made for an existing window space in a, in a house in um, Balls Bridge. Um, or you could even look at the Bewley's windows uh, to get some sort of a sense. But, but the Eve of St. Agnes in particular is very close to the Geneva window and Harry Clark deliberately you know, based the decoration of the Geneva window on the Eve of St. Agnes. It's very, very sumptuously coloured with um, a lot of blues and greens, but there's also purples and reds and orange um, tones within it. Decorated border around the edges of the window. And then Clark has used these kinds of fronds of foliage uh, to disguise where he has made, where he's connected the pieces of glass in each of the different sort of panes, if you like in the eight panes, so that it's a sort of a kind of um, a sort of organic quality to the window. In the different uh, panes, there are two scenes from literature, from early 20th century Irish literature. Um, so they're mainly, they're figures that include scenes from the Playboy of the Western World, from James Stephen's Demigods, from Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock, a poem by James Joyce, other scenes. And I suppose the other thing to note about the window, again, if you think of something like the Eve of St. Agnes or Harry Clark windows that you might be familiar with, is that the surface of the glass is very, very rich in texture. Clark double layered glass and he etched into the surface. So he drew into the surface of the glass um, to create very sort of, I suppose, uh, complex and beautiful um, works, uh, work of art. And then the other thing is that the lines of the de- texts, uh, you know, that he's illustrating, or that the window illustrates, they're also inscribed into the different parts of the window, you know, in connection with each of the different um, images or illustrations, if you want to see it like that. So it's a piece of visual art that's very much referencing literary traditions in Ireland. Absolutely, yes. I mean, Clark is known as an illustrator. Uh, He was in his lifetime known as much as an illustrator, as a stained glass artist. And he did do other windows which illustrated um, literature scenes in stained glass, like, for example, The Eve of St. Agnes, which illustrates Keats' um, poetry. He was very interested in Irish literature. He's particularly an admirer of the writings of John Millington Singh, he knew W.B. Yeats and George Russell, whose um, writings are also illustrated in the Geneva window. He was asked by the Irish government to make, to design a window that was going to go into the International Labour Building in Geneva, which was um, a new headquarters for the International Labour Organisation, which is still in existence. And um, Ireland joined it after it became independent in 1922. And in the mid 1920s, around 1925, they were completing this new building just on the lake in Geneva. 
and they invited all the member countries to contribute a work of art or a piece of decorative art furnishings for the new building. And there was a lot of debate um, in the government at that time as to what they would choose for this. There were suggestions that maybe they would do Dunemer rugs or there were inkwells as well, all kinds of things. The suggestion then came that, well, it would be good to put stained glass there because um, Ireland was very well known for its stained glass in the 1920s. And Harry Clark in particular was an internationally acclaimed artist. And they didn't run any proper competition for it. But um, Clark eventually got the commission and he came up with this scheme to illustrate uh, the writings of, I'm trying to remember how many different writers, 15 there's 15 different writers, most of them still alive at that. I think all of them were still alive um, uh, at that point. So out of those 15, I can't help but notice that there are a few who were extremely controversial and in some cases banned. Well, there was James Joyce, who isn't quite banned in Ireland, but is kept out. And then there is O'Flaherty, Liam O'Flaherty, who I've covered already in this season and who himself in the 1930s claimed that he was sort of blacklisted personally, as well as professionally, a couple of his works were banned. Do you think that Clark's engagement with a controversial figure like O'Flaherty had something to do with the reaction to that work? Oh, definitely. Um, I definitely did. Uh, I mean, I suppose one thing to say about The Window, when Clark came up with the list of writers it was before the before the censorship of publications bill had been passed. He we would have come up with a list of writers in um, early nineteen twenty seven. He would have been working on it nineteen twenty six, nineteen twenty seven. But he certainly included very controversial uh, writers. I mean, another one was O'Casey. Just before I get on to Limo Flaherty, um, uh, O'Casey's Juno and the Peacock is illustrated within it, and the year after that, you know, there were uh, the year. After that had been put on in 1926, there were there were riots again with O'Casey. Um, Limo Flaherty was specifically mentioned by the um, the government and or by people who liaised between the government and Clark. Uh, Clark finished the window in 1930, and it was shown to the Executive Council, which is the kind of the cabinet in uh, government buildings in Marion Square in September of that year. Uh, both William Cosgrave actually wrote to him directly and then Gordon Campbell, who liaised between the government and Clark. And they particularly pointed out um, Liam O'Flaherty. Now, the Liam O'Flaherty work that he chose to illustrate was a novel was published in 1926 called Mr. Galuli. It was never officially censored. Um, but the image that he chooses to depict, Mr. Galuli is this kind of... Um, retired sort of civil servant, middle-aged, not particularly attractive individual who takes up and has a relationship with a younger woman called Nellie. And she is depicted uh, basically doing a strip tease for Mr. Galuli in the window. <laughs> he's sitting back in an armchair um, holding a glass of champagne and he's got a cigarette in his hand and he's kind of leering at her. And she is... Um, Naked, she's got this beautiful sort of diaphanous scarf around her body, but we can see her breasts um, and most of her body through the um, through this kind of beautiful sort of shawl, for want of a better word, that she has around her. And that 
particular image and the but also I think the fact that it, it, it was associated with O'Flaherty um, was objected to at the time. And I'll just um uh, read out what um Gordon Campbell said he as I said liaised between the cabinet and Clark and um he wrote actually to Lennox Robinson so that Lennox Robinson could carry this information on to Clark. He said, since the window was begun, it's felt that Limo Flaherty's publications have taken a line that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the present or any other Irish government to include a representation or illustration of them in a state gift to an international office. Finally, the government could not readily justify the inclusion under such circumstances of illustrations of an author such as, for instance, as Joyce whose work has been brought under censorship by a government department. So they objected particularly to O'Flaherty, I think, because of this image. But they also mentioned Joyce, even though, in fact, Joyce's work had wasn't um, subject, as you said, to um, to censorship. Um, but it was particularly, I think, the um, representation of the nude uh, figure in the work, the image of Nellie, this the lover doing her striptease is the part of the window is shared with an illustration of George Russell's Deirdre, which shows Deirdre and her lover and um, Nisha. And Deirdre is also um, wrapped in this kind of, again, another one of these beautiful diaphanous shawls. And we can see completely her her body, her nude body. So there are several um scenes of nudity in the window and of, yes, sort of eroticism and, you know, references to sexuality, to um, lovers. There's also the scene of pegging Mike and Christy Mann in um, The Playboy of the Western World. Yes, it's quite it's quite interesting how the O'Flaherty panel with the O'Flaherty and the Deirdre uh, figures, how they really stand out when you look at the whole image, because of the nudity. You know, it is the most nude panel in the whole piece, isn't it? Absolutely. But I mean, as 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 somebody would say, as Kenny Everett would say, it's all done in the best possible taste. And um, they're, you know, they're, they're beautiful um, images. I mean, the, and the poses of the figures. And one of the, you know, if you look at the overall image of the whole window, you'll see all these different poses of the figures, uh, particularly many of the of the female figures um, in the middle two bands of the window. Uh, a clerk was very interested in dance and interested in theatre. And um, one of the big sources for the figures, including that Nelly figure um, in the Mr. Galuli part of it, was the Ballet Russe, which he had seen in London and in Paris in the 1910s and the early 1920s. And he had you know, magazines and programs and photographs. And Nicola Gordon Bow, who's the was, was the great expert on Clark, actually traced that figure of Nelly to a photograph of a ballet russe dancer. So this was um, a, a company that its origins were Russian, but it was really based in Paris and France um, during the 1910s and 1920s and put on these amazing you know, uh, ballets with music by um, uh, Stravinsky and Debussy and contemporary composers. And their subject matter was often to do with eroticism. There was one actually all about masturbation. Um, 
um, and sexual attraction. And the what was very innovative about it was the way that the bodies, poses of the figures express these kind of ideas. But as I've said, in a, in, in a very tasteful manner. So that, I think, for Clark, maybe made the window very sort of sophisticated. It fitted in with the kind of avant-garde and it would have appealed to the kind of audience that would have seen it in Geneva. You know, it would have been, it wouldn't have been the general public that would have seen this window. It would have been diplomats um, or people involved in, I suppose, the labor organizations, people, you know, of a kind of uh, international background and um, who would have perhaps been able to appreciate, if you like, the sort of references that he was making in the window. And he makes this beautiful window and uh, for the government to go in a very specific space in Geneva. Um, but they never sent it to Geneva, did they? They backed out in the end. Why did they back out? Was it was it O'Flaherty, Joyce, Juno, even the Playboy? It was just too much? Well, they never really gave a proper reason as to why they were rejecting it. Again, typical, let's say, of a lot of things in Irish political life. It, they asked, Clark was asked um, by William Cosgrave to replace, if he would consider replacing the O'Flaherty um, panel. And he he said that he wouldn't do that. He didn't want to do that. Um, but there, there was no proper negotiation. He was extremely ill. He had to go back to um, Switzerland to continue his treatment for TB. You know, he went at the end of September, October of 1930. And he waited for a response and kept writing back and nothing was resolved. And he died without knowing what, what was going to happen to the window. And his widow, uh, Margaret Clark, she was the, they paid for the window in early 1930, at 31 after Clark's death. She received the money for it, but she never received any explanation as to why they weren't going to put the window into Geneva. Looking at um, sort of memos from civil servants um, and letters of that time, it's it, the, the reasons seem to be that it was just considered, A, that it included the work of writers like Joyce and O'Flaherty that were now, well, O'Flaherty was one of the first writers to be banned and Joyce was n- not considered to be um, suitable. Also that there were a number of images in it that were, you know, that were of a sexual nature. Other comments um, by one of the civil servants referred to the fact that it, it um, represented the Irish as kind of drunken types because there are many, three of the figures, three of the male figures in it are shown drinking um, <laughs> in it. So there's a bottle of Guinness in it to do with the OKC play. And um, Mr. Galuli, as I said, is quaffing champagne. And then there's another illustration at the bottom of it, which relates to um, uh, Fitzmaurice's play the magic glasses which had been put on in the abbey in the mid-1910s but it shows a young man who's basically it's about a young fellow who's locked himself in the attic and and he's surrounded by gigantic glasses full of cavorting little nude figures it seems to be like a a teenager (laughs) that's gone to the bad and his parents are very concerned about him so there's lots of the male figures in it um are all kind of a lot of them are kind of weak figures they're you know they're seem to be in sexually obsessed or else they're drunk um but the female figures in it are by contrast 
very strong um, and they're, it's dominated really by female figures. The top of the window has got St. Bridget and St. Joan. Uh, so there are religious parts of it as well, I should say. So it, 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 can, it's, it's, um, it has a huge diversity that reflects the literature, but one could also say perhaps it reflects uh, Irish culture um, and Irish life in, in, in good and bad forms. It's amazing that they spent the money on it and they took it off the Clarks, but then did nothing with it. So what happened then? Didn't she buy it off them again? She did. Now, the, the window had been put up by the Clark Studios in a room off in, in government buildings in Marion Square beside where the cabinet met. And it was left there for about four years. And it was actually damaged during that time. I don't know what happened to it, but the, the studio had to repair a little bit. But I don't know it was major damage, but it wasn't properly looked after. So Margaret Clark bought it back. She bought it back off the next government, the Fianna Fáil government in around 1934 for the full sum that she that her husband had agreed for it. And um, she brought it. It was taken back and it was put in the Harry Clark Studios, which was in North Frederick Street. She continued the business, continued to produce stained glass windows for churches in Ireland and internationally right up into the 1970s. And Margaret Clark, she carried on that that business. She was left in this position. So the window just remained there. Um, She thought about exhibiting it in public in the 1930s and for she decided against that. I think there was a lot of concern that they they didn't want the controversy to become public because they didn't want to they didn't want it to negatively impact on the reputation of Harry Clark as um, in a, an artist of religious work and his relationship with the church or the Harry Clark Studios, you know, the business that continued on after him. I think that was one of the um, one of the reasons they hesitated. But later on, after Margaret Clark's death in the early 1960s, the window was put on display for quite a number of years in the Hugh Lane Gallery, um, where the more or less the same sort of area where the uh, Eve of St. Agnes window is, as far as I know, I'm too young to remember it. But it was put on exhibition there from about 1963 up into the mid to late 1970s. And then there was some sort of falling out and the window was taken back by Clark's children and they eventually um sold it in 1988 and it was acquired by um, the Wolfsonian Museum in Miami and that's where it is now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you point out that the Clark studio itself made no fuss and the government made no statement about it. So all of this happens behind the scenes. This is all very quiet. Do you think that the reticence to create a fuss is a feature of this sort of disagreements? And do you think that that's part of how censure works for visual art? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, particularly, I suppose, in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was, and also I should say, works that are commissioned in this way. So this isn't something that the artist just makes and exhibits and has some sort of control of. The fact that it was kind of commissioned um, means that the artist is sort of compromised as to how they can exhibit it and publicise it. Um, and that gives a lot of power then, as I've said to the people who, who commission it. So it might, in a way, differentiate um, a work of art from a piece of literature. You can't really exhibit it without the permission of the person who's commissioned it. It certainly is a way in which visual art is more um, susceptible to censorship, perhaps, than, than, a, than a work of literature, which can be circulated more easily through reproduction. I mean, now I know we think with the Internet that art, that art can very easily be reproduced, but it certainly wasn't easy to reproduce it back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And secondly, one would argue that seeing a work of art in reproduction is not the same as seeing it in the flesh, you, you, you know, you, you're 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 not really experiencing it um, in the way that it is designed to be experienced. And so, if we move then away from Harry Clark and the silencing of his Geneva window, and we discuss the uh, controversy that was a very public one and that was out in the open, and that's from 1942, the Georges Rouault's Christ and the Soldier, which was a painting that was exhibited. And which did cause a lot of controversy and discussion and disagreement. This particular work, why did it provoke such a strong reaction? Well, it's a religious subject matter. It's called it's called Christ and the Soldier, and it's a little small gouache watercolor work. So it's not even, it's not even an oil on canvas. The artist worked in this style, um, and I think it was really the representation of Christ that um, people found, or the, those that objected to it, found very, very difficult to accept. It was painted in a very modern, um, what they, what was regarded as a blasphemous manner, a very, you know, Christ appears very kind of ugly and crude. There's a kind of a darkness um, to the, the subjects. Ruo is sort of specialised in the late 1920s and 1930s, in particular, on in painting um, religious subjects from the Passion of Christ, and really going into, I suppose, the kind of the isolation, the loneliness of Christ. Christ as um, 
I suppose Christ was a human figure, the human aspects of his suffering. Whereas critics like um, Kathleen Clark, who saw the painting, the painting was acquired by the Friends of the National Collections of Ireland in London in 1942. And they were had been looking for work by Ruo because Ruo was a Catholic artist. He was still alive, didn't die until the 1950s. Um, he was hugely admired by a lot of Irish artists and by, I suppose, Irish without wanting to sound snobby about it. But Irish art, people were interested in modern art and Irish intellectuals because he was um, a Catholic artist, as I've said, who made this, who was able to make this very interesting religious art. But the friends donated, wanted to give the painting to the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art, the Hulane Gallery, which didn't have any acquisitions budgets. It was completely reliant on gifts. So they, you know, they wanted to, um, keep the collection, if you like, up to date with with good works of modern international art, and so they offered the Ruo painting there. Now, when it was shown in the municipal gallery, it had to go to this kind of um, art advisory committee, which was made up of a mixture of artists and curators and members of Dublin Corporation. And the, a lot of the members of Dublin Corporation weren't particularly interested, or certainly not interested in modern art or international modern art. Um, and Kathleen Clark, she was a former Lord Mayor. She was the widow of Tom Clark, the nineteen, you know, the the, the man who was executed after nineteen sixteen, leader of the nineteen sixteen rising. Uh, she was very nationalist, and obviously, I think must have been quite very religious. But she, in particular, was quoted as, you know, saying that she couldn't, this couldn't possibly go into a public gallery. That it was just, it was offensive to her. She said, as a Christian, to look at this type of imagery. That was the starting point of it, but the it, the the difference between it and um, the the controversy over the Geneva window it was, as you said, this became a public controversy, and the friends of the National Collections. I'm not sure who did it, but I think somebody in the friends must have leaked this story to the Irish Times because a photograph of the painting appeared on the front page of the Irish Times in early October 1942. And it fed into a much wider debate that was going on about censorship at that at that time during the late um, later part of 1942. There had been um, the Taylor and Anstey, which you've covered in another one of your your uh, programs, was banned, and there was a big public um, outcry over that, or an outcry, let's say, among the elite, perhaps more than the public. But the, it was being debated in the Senate in November, December of that year, and so. Censorship was very at the forefront, if you like, of the media and media concern, and particularly the Irish Times. And the Irish Times, I think, was also interested in highlighting anything to do with censorship because it objected, or the, the editor, Smiley, objected to the increased censorship that was being brought in because of the emergency, because of the Second World War. So there was literature, censorship of literature, but there was also this wider sort of political media censorship and this seemed to be, I think, connected to that. And so that also meant that, um, if you like, there was more interest in this work of art and more interest in why there would be objections to it. Another aspect to it was that unlike the Clark work, which was destined to go into this uh, you know, building, this private building in a way, the Ruo painting was intended to go into a public gallery. 
so everybody can get in, can walk into the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art and see this work of art. And that was of concern, I think, to those members of the Art Advisory Committee who voted against it. It's this sort of protectionist, paternalistic attitude towards the general public, which is so much part of the whole censorship thing in Ireland at that time. Yes, it's very similar to with the books that are censored. Often the more popular it is, there is an urge to censor because more people are reading it. And these people are indiscriminate readers who must be protected because they're too innocent and too stupid to know otherwise. And it's the same impulse. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, the the Clark one was to represent Ireland internationally. So there was huge sensitivity about that. I might have made that clear earlier, but, you know, that it, it represented Ireland as being not obsessed, but certainly very interested in sex and drink. They and were comporting. right. <laughs> they were probably right, but we wouldn't want to admit it publicly. And um, I mean, I think Kathleen Clark's comments were genuine. She she obviously did genuinely find this offensive and she would have thought that maybe other Catholics who were used to seeing certain conventional representations of Christ would have found this deeply unsettling and so they were making the decision <laughs> if you like on behalf. Yes the conventional religious art I suppose that's found in churches and schools and convents it's it's those alabaster saints kind of everything is white or primary colours and it's it's very you know figurative yeah, whereas Ruo is a very different interpretation of, you know, the human condition meeting the divine. Very, very heavy black outlines. You can't really see the face of, face of Christ at all. It shows his body kind of um, uh, sort of, well, emaciated would be going too far, but it's um, not in any way an idealized body. If you think of those kind of sacred heart images that are kind of ubiquitous, yeah, it gives you it also gives you a positive image of Christ. This is not in any way positive. <laughs> it's 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 more an iconic image to dwell on the what what Christ was going through at that particular part of the Christian story. So it is actually quite a serious it is a serious religious work, but that aspect was was missed. And I mean another part of the debate just and the the art world part of the debate really was and um, this resources thing, why should we have international work coming into our gallery, especially the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art, it's the only modern art gallery in the country. You know, we should have work by Irish artists. That really should be what's being prioritised. That was felt by some of the people who spoke out against it. And that's also to do, that was also exacerbated by the war. A couple of speakers spoke out against this as being um, what one described as a continental red herring. You know, Europe is at war. It's the the whole society is corrupt. And we don't. Why should we be part of this? Why should we have part of this in in our public elections? That was an element of neutrality, I think, that that kind of holier than thou almost. A smug attitude, really, that um, a lot of, uh, you know, people like Beckett in particular later found very, very objectionable. And so Kathleen Clark's reaction it's very, you know, it's very instinctive and very emotional. You know, she uses the word offensive as well, which is really underpins a lot of censorship discussions, the concept of offence. And I often think that censorship and censure comes from that really kind of emotional uh, reaction to art. Do you think that that's what 
critics are trying to articulate when they object to a piece, that kind of emotional response? Or are they perhaps drawing on more cerebral ideas about the representation of Ireland or... I think it depends on the on the critic. I mean, I think that a lot of the um, vector that was Im- immediately published um, after the painting was, um, you know, shown to the Art Advisory Committee, and then there was it, it was they showed it in Dublin as well, in the College of Surgeons. I think that's an immediate reaction, and it is a kind of an emotional reaction, um, a, you know, genuine sense of fear a sense of alienation from um, the culture that's producing this. And I think it's, it's a, it comes also um, from a sense that modern art in particular is conning us. It's hoodwinking us. What, how do we evaluate something like this? It doesn't seem to have any great technical skill. It's not beautiful. It's not idealized. So it, again, it's that it doesn't fit in with, um, an expectation of art that um, most people would have had up until well into the into the 20th century. And there was a fear of this kind of spread of this sort of modern art culture, you know, that it would, if we think back to conventional ideas, if we go back to this idea of the public gallery, there was the, the whole reason that public museums of art were set up in the 19th century, which was their kind of heyday, was art was seen to reflect kind of communal values and to instill a sort of sense of beauty and morality and order on society. So the lower classes were encouraged to go to museums and galleries in the 19th and early 20th century because it was felt it was going to have a beneficial effect on them. Um, so it's a very Victorian idea about art that prevailed, as I've said, well into the 20th century. Now, modern art is a completely different. It could be seen as it was seen. And a lot of it is very subversive. It's very individualistic. This is very much expresses Ruo's response. I wouldn't say this work is subversive, but I think it would have been seen, considered that way by people who weren't familiar with it. And it uses a very different type of formal language to, to sort of conventional academic art. It's, it's very problematic. And if you're not familiar with it, then, as I said, that causes a, a genuine sense of fear and disgust. Also, I suppose I'd say in these decades, right up, you know, 1920s and particularly the 1930s and 40s, there was widespread fear of the degeneration of public morals through the display of modern art in Europe. You know, we, um, if you think of the Nazis in the 1930s and their ex, the big exhibition of degenerate art, they took all, they, the Germans were the first really important collectors of modern art. They put it into their galleries before the French even in the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, up until the rise of until Hitler came to power in 1933, they had amazing collections of modern art and they took those all out rapidly in the mid-1930s, put them out of public view, they sold them off, they burnt part of them. So this idea of degeneracy was, I think it was a widespread fear. We can dismiss that, but I think that was a genuine a genuine fear about it. The other thing, of course, a lot of decisions was made by bureaucrats and politicians who do, I would say, particularly in Ireland, tend to be extremely cautious and conservative by nature and who do not generally have any deep understanding or appreciation of visual art. Um, And as I've said, they tend to take the paternalistic attitude, really. 
that paternalism really does link ideas of reading and consumption of visual art. I mean, the kind of recreational improving value of reading was heavily stressed by librarians that, you know, that you can educate the public if they read the right books. So we have to make sure they have the correct books to read. And therefore, we have a lot of nonfiction because that's very improving and will cultivate the mind more than reading, say, frivolous stories. Um, and there seems to be a lot of interplay, I think, between what you're saying about visual art and the sort of things I've looked at uh, for the censorship of the text. So do you think that there is a kind of a censure or censorship culture like that sort of blends from the text into the visual? Do you think that these two uh, aspects are related? I do, yeah. I mean, I think everything is interconnected. And I think if you are living in a society that has this very sort of censorious attitude, it's going to affect everybody, uh, both the, the public and the producers of art. I mean, at a very basic level, I think that the culture of censorship in Ireland made access, although it was focused on films and publication, it made understanding of visual art elitist. Um, in the same way, I suppose, that access to literature was that, that uh, you know, the only those whose families were involved in visual art or who came from sort of well-off backgrounds and could afford to travel and access education um, where, you know, they, they would have learned art. Secondary schools didn't teach art. Our primary schools, they dropped teaching of art in 1922. So visual art was definitely um, relegated to the sidelines, I think, in the early decades, for most of the um, decades of, the, of modern Ireland, right up into the 70s. To talk about the connection of, you know, with the censorship of of, of publications and literature, yeah, the, it's the, the the education of artists, the the production, their relationship with their audience, if you like, with the viewers, yeah, it becomes it's subsumed into this wider climate of conservatism and prurience, you know. For example, regarding whether well, depiction even of religious subjects in this case, or depict regarding the depiction and understanding of sexuality. Um, you know, where you're always looking for the dirty bits, as you're saying. I mean, that destroys um, your relationship with the visual image. And um, it also, I think, has a massive impact on this idea of individual, on the individual, this need to conform that we find in, in terms of censorship. That makes it very difficult to understand what the modern artist is trying to do if you, if you, you know, base your sense of uh, culture on this notion of communal values. How does how how does the artist fit into that? I suppose also the the censorship of publications really does focus very strongly on all the great modern writers. So modern literary forms come under great censorship. So the context is stripped out if you get just the odd occasional visual piece from the modernist tradition, it might seem even more strange. Yes, that's true, yes. Absolutely. I think that did contribute to um, a general ignorance and suspicion of modern art. I mean, one I would uh, I mean, you could argue that the production of art in Ireland was directly affected by censorship in the in the fact that many Irish artists produced. They tended to produce landscapes as opposed to nudes. Nudes are relatively rare in Irish art. 
And it, there's been what's been described as a very polite approach to modern art on the part of Irish artists up to the 1960s and beyond. And that could be seen as maybe an unconscious response to the, you know, the society that they're exhibiting their work in. It could be also seen as a practical response that um, these artists, they, they need to sell their work. And um, so they are, um, they, they, what would you say, they alter it, they tailor it to suit a particular, a more conservative art going public and art market. And we don't get the same sense of an avant-garde that you that you'd find particularly on the continent, or particularly in Paris, where they just went mad attacking things all the time. It, it, that just it wouldn't have worked here. We did our society was too small. And the other interesting thing about it is that it's, it's sometimes argued that artists actually used uh, sorts of strategies of censorship in their own work to imitate the mechanisms of censorship, again, perhaps unconsciously or deliberately in some cases. So like in Yeats, Jack Yeats's work from about 1926, 27 onwards, the late 1920s, when Censorship of Publications Act actually came into force, he moved away from very kind of realist work where you can really understand everything's very legible into his kind of later style where you get much more convoluted compositions and forms that are very, very difficult to decipher. And he also began to use much more enigmatic titles. So you get text um, becoming significant there. And his work entails the kind of direct physical involvement of the viewer. And sometimes it's not possible, actually. Very often it's not possible to actually decipher every detail in his paintings to know what exactly is going on. I've often thought, were these artists exhibiting this in a kind of playful way, you know, getting getting a joke out of it or getting, what would you call it, a kind of a frisson or a, an added um, sense of meaning about the work because it played on this idea of layers, of hidden layers of meaning and of having to work around it to decipher it. It's, you know, I see it's something as more than just a, com- a modernist thing, but a distinctly Irish thing. Um, and the other thing I would say is that um, the fact that the the government wasn't really that focused on visual art, you know, it was the emphasis was on was on literature. Um, it would, as I said, it was part of the relegation of visual art to the sidelines, but that could be liberating in a way. I mean, Harry Clark, he didn't get away with it in the Geneva window. I think he thought he was going to get away with it. But in a lot of his church um, windows, there is something mildly subversive about them. The work that he was producing right through the 20s, you know, they have they celebrate modernity. You've got lovely young women in his windows, very fashionably dressed, very fashionable hairstyles, makeup. They're of the 20s. And I kind of think that's a little bit um, subversive. Some members of the clergy objected, you know, to his work on those kind of grounds. And there's a sensuality as well about his depictions of even the Virgin Mary, and um, you know that take delight in the, the intensity of the color, the form, the sort of knowing expression of the um, of the figures are, that, that that are subversive. And I'm sure that there were young women, in particular, and men, maybe sitting in those masses endlessly in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and looking up at those windows and getting. Uh, you know, getting what Clark was getting at there, getting a kind of a release 
out um, into the, the contemporary world. I mean, he used film as well and popular culture as sources in these works. Well, Roisin, thank you so much. That has been just an extraordinary tour t- through some of the the big controversies in Irish art, although I know your book contains many more, so I would recommend people to go read. But it has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed it as well, actually. And thank you so much for inviting me to participate. So thank you very much. Isn't it mad how forms of censure can be just as powerful as state censorship? Of course, it is harder to identify because there's no legislation and there's no register recording prohibitions. Sometimes I think we're more comfortable with the bureaucratic form of state censorship because it's easy to see. But censure can be so confusing. Who do you blame? Who's the baddie in these scenarios? Like, should we retrospectively cancel Kathleen Clark because her religious feelings motivated her to prevent people seeing Ruo's painting? And how daring should art be anyway? Where is the line between challenging an audience and gratuitously offending them? It gets very complicated when the audience and the buyer are the nation-state, as was the case for Clark's Geneva window. Nellie's nakedness is artistic, but when the state paid for the work, it became a highly charged cultural statement. It implied really that they approved of such nudity. Now, Clark wasn't selecting band writers like Liam O'Flaherty deliberately, because, as Roisin says, there was no blacklist when he came up with the scheme for the window. But isn't it interesting that the plays and novels he chose pushed against safe, conventional taste? That old adage, all the best stuff was banned, sometimes looks true.